Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together, to worship you, to fellowship, and to learn from your word. We pray that you would equip us uh, for life, equip us for following you. We pray that uh, you would just fill us with a sense of your grace and that you would help us to truly understand uh, precisely and accurately the nature of our sin and the nature of your grace. Uh, And we thank you for your grace. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we're starting a new series called How to Be Legalistic. So a year or two ago, I think, Anvesh asked me to teach on legalism. Uh, hopefully this is what he meant. <laughs> Anyways, the, the term legalism has become a bit of a catch-all term almost for any type of having an unhealthy relationship with the law or with rules. One person will say legalism to mean one thing, and then another person will mean it to say another, and then we all have at least one person that we've met in our life who we're like, that's a really legalistic person, and then they talk about other people being legalistic. Like, you know, uh, there's not a lot of consensus on practically what legalism is. So in this series, we're actually going to address four different things that I would call legalism. Uh, There's four different problems that I would call legalism. The first one is believing that the law will justify you. The second one is believing that separation will sanctify you. The third one is holding standards that God doesn't command. And the fourth one is caring about God's commands more than God does. But So each one of these types of legalism is going to get its own sermon in this series. So today we're talking about the belief that the law will justify you. Unfortunately, legalism has the tendency to creep into our thoughts and attitudes, often in small ways and often too subtle for us to notice. So the goal of this series is to help you identify legalism in your own thoughts and attitudes and to help you overcome it. Because it really does creep in in small ways in our thoughts and our attitudes, typically without us noticing. All right, so today is the first sermon, so believing that the law will justify you. What do I mean by believing that the law will justify you? Uh, Believing that whether or not a person is righteous or whether or not they're in good standing with God is based on how well they obey God. When you rephrase it that way, that whether or not a person is in good standing with God is based on how well they obey God, it sounds a lot more believable than just wording it that the law will justify you. If you just change it a little, it becomes much easier to believe. That's why legalism is so subtle. And sometimes, so this can be any type of holding to a law. Sometimes it's not even God's law. Sometimes we start to believe or act like a person is righteous or unrighteous based on how well they keep our law. That is something we get tempted to do as well. And that is also legalism. So why is this a problem? What's wrong with believing that, uh, that whether or not a person is righteous is based on how well they obey God? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that belief, and it doesn't have anything good to say about it. Let's, we're going to look at like 10 passages of Scripture. Uh, let's look at Romans 3, verses 20 through 24. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying pretty clearly, no one, no human being in the history of humanity will ever have a good standing with God based on keeping the law. Or to to phrase it a bit differently to help us understand it, no human in the history of existence is ever going to have a good relationship with God based on how well they obey him. Because no one can obey him well enough. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Let's also look at verse 28 of the same chapter. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's also look at 2 Timothy verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave uh, us in Christ Jesus before the ages again began. So Paul is very clear, God didn't save us because we deserved it. God didn't save us because we obeyed him. God didn't save us because we're good people. And even though we get tempted to believe that, that is nonsense. Let's also look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not only is God's salvation to you a gift that you don't deserve, but you receive it through faith, and even the faith is a gift that you don't deserve. God enabled you to have faith when you wouldn't have otherwise been willing to trust him. Let's also look at uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Once we get to Galatians, we start to see how serious this issue is. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in this book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by that. So this is pretty severe. Paul is saying anyone who relies on their obedience to God for good standing with God is under a curse. And he's not just throwing that term around, he means that. Let's look at Galatians 2 verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. 
because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's also look at Galatians 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. You know, that makes sense. If, if you could be good enough to have a relationship with God or to have good standing with God apart from Christ's death on your behalf, then Christ died for no reason. Let's look at Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4. And Paul starts to really show how serious this issue is here. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So the Galatians, at the time of Paul writing the letter to the Galatians, had um, people among them who were trying to convince them that you had to not only trust Christ, but you had to also be circumcised to be saved. You had to also obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul is telling them, if you believe this and don't repent of believing it, you're not born again. Like, Paul is very clearly saying that. He's if you believe this, if you start to rely on the, your obedience for righteousness, Christ will be of no benefit to you. That's very serious. And we can see um, from the chapter previous that that is his concern for the Galatians. Let's look at Galatians 4, verses 9 through 11. But now that you have come to know God, or rather rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to uh, be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored for you in vain. Paul is saying, you guys have started following the Jewish law again because you think it's necessary. I'm worried that you're not really born again. I'm worried that I may have labored for you in vain. Now, God's law is important, but we don't rely on it for salvation. It's not irrelevant like some people think, but, but we don't rely on it for salvation. But we'll get to that later in this series. And lastly, let's just look at Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That means they thought they were righteous because of how well they obeyed God and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." 
So the Bible has nothing good to say about the belief that good standing with God is based on how well you obey him. It has some pretty severe things to say about that belief. So don't believe that. It's not a good idea. It's not biblical. So now that we've looked at that, um, let's talk about how we let this belief creep in. Because one of the issues with legalism is it it creeps into our thoughts and attitudes in subtle ways, and it's often hard to notice. So how do we let this belief creep in? Well, I think there's three ways that we sometimes let this belief or the underlying thoughts behind it creep in. The first one is being condemning towards others or feeling morally superior. You know, it's, it's easy to sometimes be condemning towards others or to feel morally superior. But if we're condemning towards others or if we feel morally superior, it shows that we believe that we're more righteous than them. But Christ didn't die more for us than he did for them. So if we believe that we're more righteous than others, we believe Uh, that it's because we obey God better than they do. Which means we believe, to at least some extent, or we've started to believe to some extent, that we're good people because we obey God. And that's nonsense. But this really does creep into our thoughts and attitudes in subtle ways. Anytime that you feel mortally superior to another person, you've allowed this to creep into your thoughts. So how can we overcome this? How can we overcome letting this idea creep in and causing us to be condemning towards others or to feel morally superior? There's two things you can do. The first one is to realize how sinful you are. So there's two things I want to say about how to realize how sinful you are. Realize that you didn't miss God's standard by just a bit. Sometimes we get tempted to think that pedophiles and rapists and murderers and drunkards and drug addicts have all missed God's standard by a lot, and that comparatively, we haven't missed it by that much. And that is a load of nonsense. Let's look at James 2, verses 9 through 11. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in it at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So partiality is one of those respectable sins that we don't really condemn people for. Uh, If other people are partial, we tend to not even notice it most of the time. But if somebody commits adultery or murder, we tend to think, well, that's a bad person. But James is saying, it doesn't matter. You've all missed God's standard. Let's also look again at Romans 3, verses 21 through 24. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
There, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I want to focus on that term, for there is no distinction. He says, for there is no distinction, and then he gives a reason why. The reason there's no distinction is because all have sinned and because all fall short of the glory of God. And anyone who is justified is justified by his grace as a gift. But this, I would say this idea that there's no distinction, this isn't only referring to there being no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but it also means there's no distinction between the extremely disobedient and the mildly disobedient, like we tend to think there is. There is no distinction between those who obey God, disobey God at every chance they get, very um, outrightly and not just in subtle ways, and the people who just disobey subtly here and there. There's no distinction. Because due to your sins against God, you deserve death just as much as a murdering rapist pedophile does. And if that seems hard to understand, we'll get to the reasoning behind it in just a second. But we need to realize that there is no distinction. Even if you grew up in a Christian home and never had a long streak of rebellion because of your sins against God, you actually, on a practical level, deserve death just as much as a murdering rapist pedophile. And you need to be able to grasp that enough to feel it. Let's look at Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never be paid, that they should live on forever and never see the pit. The psalmist doesn't make distinction here between, well, if someone's a pretty good person, you'd only have to pay a little. But if someone's really evil, you'd have to pay a lot. He said, for anyone, no human could ever pay the price. It's not even worth thinking about what it is. It's just something that could never be paid. But how do, how do we come to grasp the idea to really get it that our sins against God are just as bad as everyone else's? Well, you need to understand the significance of your sin being against God. You need to understand the significance of your sin being against God. In order to understand why sin against God deserves death, and why you deserve it just as much as any other sinner, we have to grasp that. Let's look at Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So this is a psalm that David wrote, and he wrote it after he got repent, uh, confronted by Nathan for committing adultery and maybe rape to been, uh, but that's up for debate, um, Bathsheba, and for murdering her husband. And then he writes this really strange thing that almost seems way off the wall. Against you and you only have I sinned. So what does he mean by that? Why would he say that? I would say the reason he says that is because it's not that he 
Denton, Ron, Bathsheba, and Uriah, but it's that the debt that he owes to God is so significantly more than the debt that he owes to Bathsheba and Uriah for what he did to them. Nothing compared to the significance, um, you know, the debt that he owes to Bathsheba and Uriah for what he did to them, even though he can never repay Uriah, is nothing compared to the debt he owes to God, whom he also can never repay. Let me kind of give a, an example to hopefully flesh this out. So the punishment for stealing $100 is that you have to give back $100 maybe with a little interest. That's a fair punishment. If, if I stole $100 from someone and they responded, you deserve to die, I'm going to kill you, that would be a bit harsh. Even by God's law, that would be a bit harsh. There's a reason it says in the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because we tend to want to judge others too harshly. But whenever any sin happens, there's two wrongs that were committed. When a person steals, there's two wrongs that were committed. One of those wrongs is against the person they stole from, and the other is against God. The one against the other person, if you stole $100, it only deserves a $100 fine. That's all it deserves. It doesn't deserve more than that, except for maybe interest. So maybe say $120. If you steal $100, it would be fair for you to pay $120 back, and that would be justice. There'd be nothing more owed. But that's only for one of the wrongs that was committed, because when a person steals, two wrongs were committed, one against the person that was stolen from and one's against God. The one that's against God is much more serious. The one that's against God is deserving from death, deserving of death. You were created by an infinitely glorious and all-powerful God who made you for himself. But in your heart, you've desired to do the exact opposite of what he created to do. Namely, you've desired to live for yourself. And betraying God and doing the exact opposite of what he created us to do is deserving of death, plain and simple. And that's true whether we commit respectable sins or very heinous ones. So you need to, if you're struggling with being condemning towards others or feeling morally superior, you need to work on realizing how sinful you are. And even if you haven't committed the same sins as other people, that's irrelevant. The second thing you need to realize is that you have nothing good in yourself. We need to realize that we can't live obediently to God on our own. Let's look at Romans 7, verses 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep doing. At this point, I would kind of think Paul was like pretty sanctified. You know, he wasn't a baby Christian when he wrote the book of Romans. He had been in this thing for a few years or a few decades. But Paul, talking about, you know, just acknowledging reality when writing the book of Romans, is saying, I know that I have nothing good in me. I know that I have no ability to obey God on my own apart from his help and his intervention. Let's 
Let's also look at Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, this is one of the problems with believing that we're not as bad as other people, believing that we're good people. One of the reasons we believe it is because the heart is deceitful above all things. One of the reasons we'd believe something like that is because we want to. And at the end of the day, everyone does believe what they want to believe. You, you need to get to the point where you can be disciplined in what you believe to believe things that are unpleasant. But everyone believes what they want to believe because what you believe is a choice. So we, we need to realize that we can't live obediently to God on our own. And we also need to realize uh, that we have no way of having godly character apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. If we read this inversely, if, you're not grat- if a person is actually living without gratifying the desire of the flesh, they're walking in the Spirit. Because you can't live without gratifying the desire of the flesh unless you're walking in the Spirit. Let's also look at Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. He says these things are the fruit of the Spirit. They're caused by what the Spirit is doing in you. So we need to realize how sinful we are uh, if we're struggling with condemnation towards others. But the, the next thing we can do is we can think about how much God loves them and how he offers forgiveness to them. You know, that kind of brings up the example of the prodigal son, which we don't have time to read the whole thing, but we can read the last part of it. Let's look at Luke 15, verses 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came out and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never once gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother in the parable thinks that he's a good person. He thinks that his heart is with his father. But his heart is far from the father. Because the father cares about all his children, but the older brother refuses to care about them. And he even has the nerve to think that the father is wrong for doing so. You know, when we struggle with condemnation towards others, not only should we realize how sinful we are, but we need to realize how much God loves the other person.
All right, the second way we allow the belief that the law will justify us to creep into our thoughts and attitudes is being condemning towards ourselves. If you're condemning towards yourself, then deep down you feel like or you think that you're unrighteous. But the reason you think that is because you haven't obeyed God well. But that means you think that your righteousness is based on whether or not you obey God well. So how, how do we overcome this, this attitude of being condemning towards ourselves? Well, first off, you need to understand that your good standing with God is completely by grace. It starts by grace, and it's continued by grace. We, we all get that it starts by grace, but we tend to not always realize that it's, it can only be continued by grace. We're running a bit behind, so we won't look at the scripture I was going to read for it starts by grace, but you know, by grace you have been saved. Paul was very clear about that, as we saw earlier. But our good standing with God continues by grace. Sometimes we think of um, coming to Christ as a, a second chance or a blank slate. That is ridiculous. We would be hopelessly lost if it was a second chance because we'd mess up the second chance as badly as we messed up the first chance. God doesn't give us a blank slate. God gives us a completely filled out slate, one that was filled with Christ's righteousness and one that can't be edited. So we need to realize that our good standing with God continues by grace. Once we're saved, we're still going to have struggles with sin, but God's grace is there for us. Let's look at 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's also look at Hebrews 7, verses 22 and 25. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I like this saying, to save to the uttermost. That means to save as completely as can possibly be. It means to save not 99.99999%, but to save 100% as completely as can possibly be. But what kind of intercession does Christ do for us? Well, we have an example. Let's look at Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said to, 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, clothed with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So this is the high priest. And, uh, you know, filthy garments represent his sinfulness. The high priest would be, quote unquote, one of the better people, as, as we tend to think of it in our, um, you know, human estimation. But the high priest was clothed in filthy garments because he's just as sinful as everyone else is. But the Lord rebukes Satan for accusing him. And when Jesus sees us struggling with sin, even though we're saved, he intercedes for us like this. He doesn't listen to Satan's rebukes when Satan says, why do you still love that guy? He rebukes Satan. So our, our good standing with God starts by grace and is continued by grace. If it wasn't continued by grace, we'd be hopeless. The other thing we should do if we're struggling with condemnation towards ourselves is to aim to see our sin from God's perspective. You know, we talked about this last week, but you don't want to see your sin as too big or as too small. And sometimes we do get tempted to see our sin as too big. Because it's wrong for you to see your sin as bigger than God sees it. It is very serious, but God doesn't see it as the end of the world. And if he doesn't see it as the end of the world, then you shouldn't either. He also, he doesn't approve of your sin, but he isn't discouraged about it. Because he knows that he's bigger than your sin is. And if you start to see your sin as bigger than God is, then you see your sin is too big. Comparatively, at least. And we also don't want to see our sin as too small. We need to understand that it is very serious, and we need to not make excuses for it. But we should aim to see our sin from God's perspective. So that's the second way we tend to let the idea or the belief that we're justified by how well we obey God. That's the second way we tend to let it creep into our thinking and our attitudes. The third way we tend to let it creep in is being proud about our morality. Sometimes we're not necessarily condemning towards others, but we can still be proud about our morality without being condemning towards others. And if we're proud about our morality, it shows that... uh, that we believe that we're righteous because of how well we obey God. If the only righteousness you have is a free gift of grace you didn't deserve, then you wouldn't be proud of it. If ever you're proud about your morality, then you have a little bit of idea within you or belief that righteousness is based on how well you obey God. And you need to overcome that idea. You need to you know, totally reject that. But how do we overcome feeling proud about our morality? Well, like we talked about earlier, you need to realize how sinful you are. But another thing you can do is remember your sin. Remember the sins you've committed previously. Let's look at Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 7. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. 
Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess this land. But because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word of the Lord that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until, this, until you've come to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Now we need to have a, a balanced view. But to, because struggles with condemnation are so frequent, uh, in America, well, in general, we tend to really focus on all the verses of, that comfort us about our sin. But there's also this verse where God very clearly tells the Israelites, hey, you remember your rebellion? Don't forget it. Keep remembering that. Because the memory is useful. Because it, it would be really bad if they were to start to think, it's because I'm a good person that God gave me this land. It would be really bad for them to start to think, God blesses me because I'm a good person. God really doesn't want them to develop that thought because that would be arrogance. And that will hinder their relationship with him. And, well, arrogance doesn't work out too well. But we've all sinned plenty of times before. And we can use the memory of those sins to help us humble ourselves. And to not feel proud about our morality. But the other thing we should do besides remembering our sin is to remember God's empowerment. Remember that God has empowered you and think about how you wouldn't live obediently if it weren't for his divine intervention. Let's, all, let's look at Deuteronomy 8 verses 17 and 18. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So God is telling them, you know, I'm going to bless you and you're going to acquire much wealth, but don't think to yourself that it was all you who did it. How much more should we make a point to remember God's empowerment when it comes to things like good works and obedience? We need to be purposeful about remembering God's empowerment, especially because God's empowerment is often kind of subtle and sometimes hard to see if you're not looking for it. You know, it, it, we see a lot in the lives of David and Joseph that they succeeded in everything they put their hands to because the Lord their God was with them. But to the normal person who was looking at their lives who didn't know that God was blessing them, they probably just sort of thought, well, David's... He's a strong dude. Things work out for him. He's good at what he does. And they would have thought the same about Joseph. God's empowerment can be very subtle, and if we're not looking for it, or if we're looking at our life in a humanistic way, we can easily miss it. We can easily just not realize that where and when he's empowering us to do better than we would otherwise do. So we need to remember God's empowerment. 
Another thing you can do is, you know, think about how you used to be before you were a Christian and imagine how you would be if that trajectory had continued and God had not intervened. You know, the only reason you live obediently at all, if you do, is because of God's intervention. If God hadn't intervened, your sins might not be as obvious as some other people's. They might be the more subtle, respectable type, but you'd still be living for yourself and fully deserving of death as much as murderers and rapists and pedophiles. So that's the last way that um, the belief that the law justifies us tends to creep in, and that's how we can fight against it. So that brings us to our conclusion. In conclusion, legalism is subtle, and it tries to creep into our thoughts and attitudes and emotions in small, subtle ways. And we have to be on guard against it. We have to be very purposeful. And secondly, God's forgiveness and acceptance were started by grace alone, and they'll continue by grace alone. God forgives you by grace, and he accepts you by grace. And he delights in you as a child of his because of his grace. We need to have that, that belief firmly built into our outlook on life. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, for your grace, Lord. We thank you that even though our sin is much worse than we know, your grace is much more powerful than we know, and your love for us is much more passionate than we know. We pray that you'd help us to know and understand our sin accurately and precisely, and we pray that you'd help us to know and understand your grace accurately and precisely. We pray that we would come to, uh, to truly have a deep understanding of redemption, and we thank you for your empowerment and your love for us, and amen.